Well, good morning. Uh, let me add my welcome to you to Christ the King, whether you join us regularly or you're here visiting us for the first time today. We at Christ the King have been going through the book of First Samuel, but you'll have noticed today that we're taking a break from that this week as we look at the New Testament and a snapshot of the life of Jesus in the Gospel of John. But as we start, I want to say though we're now centuries later, we'll see this morning that this passage, I think, sheds light on the themes we've been exploring in the book of First Samuel, especially the themes of love and of judgment. And I want to begin by reflecting on what some current events going on in our world today show us about the way our culture views these two ideas of love and judgment. And it was a colleague of mine, Michael Ramsden, who pointed these out to me. Uh, he drew my attention to, maybe if you recall, a couple years ago, um, there was a, a British author named Germaine Greer, who's a, a feminist writer. She's um, quite well known over in the UK. And she had been invited to give a talk at Cardiff University uh, in Wales, in the United Kingdom. but. Uh, Leading up to the speaking invitation, the speaking event, she um, made some controversial comments on Caitlyn Jenner. Maybe you recall that Vogue magazine had named Caitlyn Jenner Woman of the Year. And Caitlyn Jenner had been Bruce Jenner, the Olympic athlete um, who had transitioned to become a woman and taken the name Caitlyn. And what was interesting, you know, Jermaine Greer, not a religious believer by any means, an atheist, but she, she said things that put her in hot water. She said it upset her as a feminist to see Caitlyn Jenner win this award. And the reason she gave was, she said, it seems to suggest that someone who was born a man but underwent some surgery could become a better woman than all of the natural born women in the world. It was provocative, it was controversial, and it led to her being deplatformed by the National uh, Union of Students in the United Kingdom. But what was interesting is who came to her defense after she did this. Uh, there is a longtime LGBT rights activist named Peter Tatchell, who um, is a gay man himself and had been campaigning all the way back to the 1980s uh, in that area. And he came to her defense and said, you know, I disagree with the views Jermaine Greer has expressed, but we live in the United Kingdom. We value freedom of speech. She has the right to speak. Now, at this point, uh, Peter Tatchell was also deplatformed by the National Union of Students. But what was interesting was the reason that was given for why. Peter Tatchell was deplatformed de because he was found to be homophobic. Now, Peter Tatchell, recall, is a, is a gay man himself. He's been an LGBT rights activist back when there really was no sympathy for that movement at all. But the reason was. <laughs> The student who'd put forward the notion to the motion to ban Jermaine Greer was himself a gay student. So the reasoning was, if Peter Tatchell disagrees with this gay student, it can only be because Peter Tatchell is homophobic. And so this is what happened. And then soon after, another voice entered the conversation. Richard Dawkins, the cuddly Oxford atheist, had some choice words to say about uh, those who want to control what can be said on their campus. And, um, Richard Dawkins was then deplatformed as well by the National Union of Students. And I just want to call this scene uh, to our attention as we think about what is this saying about the way our culture understands these issues of love and of judgment. And I want to use the words of this colleague of mine, Michael Ramsden. I think he gets it just right when he says, nowadays, the situation is this. Everybody describes and sees themselves as a victim of something. 
And when you're the victim of something, the overwhelming narrative in your life becomes everything that I do and say on this subject is motivated only by love. But anything which you say, if you disagree with me, is motivated only by hate. So everything which I do is right. I am utterly self-righteous in everything I say because everything I'm saying is motivated only by love. And you need to understand that. But if you disagree with me, the only reason you disagree with me is because you hate me. I think the mantra of our culture right now is that true love is love in the absence of judgment. Identity is something we form for ourselves. If you really love me, you will accept me as I am. And tying into what we've been looking at in 1 Samuel, just last week we were in 1 Samuel 13. We were looking at how God judges Saul. And we saw how the Israelites had called out for a king like the other nations had. God had raised up Samuel to anoint Saul. At the anointing of Saul, he'd been given very specific instructions of things to do next by God. But we looked at how Saul did not heed these instructions, and we saw that it cost Saul the kingdom. And we looked last week at how this was actually an issue of the heart for Saul. And yet, I think in our culture, we still might feel this was a little harsh of God. He laid out instructions that were very specific. God took Saul's disobedience very seriously. This seems to be a God who judges. But at the same time, we know from, from 1 Samuel again even, that God is a God who is a God of love. In 1 Samuel 12, we were reminded that Samuel says about God, the Lord will not forsake his people. So on the one hand, it seems God is a God of judgment, and on the other hand, that God is a God of love. And this morning, through this passage in John's Gospel, which I imagine might be familiar for many of us, I want us to look with fresh eyes and think about how these themes of love and judgment come out in this story and help us understand better how a truly loving God could have this element where he is also a God who judges. Why would a loving God judge us? So I invite you, uh, if you have the passage still open before you from John chapter 4, I'm just going to begin walking through it. And I invite you just to have those categories again in mind as we look closely at what God's word has to say to us today. John 4 verse 1, Now when Jesus learned the Pharisees had heard Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize but only his disciples, Jesus left Judea and departed again for Galilee. Verse 4 we read, He had to pass through Samaria. And he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, so Jesus, wearied as he was from this journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. We read here that Jesus has to pass through Samaria. And historically, this seems to actually have been true. Jesus was going up from Jerusalem to Galilee. You could go all the way across the desert to the Dead Sea and go up the River Jordan, but that's quite a long journey. And Josephus, the ancient historian, says, if you were in a hurry, you would just cut through this country of Samaria. Now, in the Roman Empire, Samaria and Jerusalem were actually part of the same district. But anyone who knew the history of the Samaritans and the Jews would know that it still was a bit tense to pass through this region because there is a shared history, but a shared conflicted history between these two parts of what is now modern day Israel and Palestine. And actually in the Old Testament you could read about this first in 1 Kings chapter 12. It's the story of what happened under Rehoboam, who was the son of Solomon, the grandson of David. Rehoboam had unwisely uh, 
been harsh with the tribes that weren't his own. Rehoboam, the line of David, that was from the tribe of Judah, but there were 11 other tribes in ancient Israel, and it led to a split where these other tribes became the northern kingdom and removed themselves from the southern kingdom in what is now you know, Jerusalem. What happened after this was that a few chapters later in this same book, 1 Kings, you can read this kingdom didn't last long. 1 Kings 17, we read that the Assyrians come in, they wipe out the northern kingdom. This is about 721 BC. And they kill many of the Israelites, but the ones who remain, the Assyrians intentionally have them intermarry with these other people groups who resettle in that northern region. And they name that region Samaria. But for this reason, the Jews in the south saw the northern kingdom as impure, ethnically, but also impure spiritually. And this was in part because the Samaritans, in rejecting David's line of kings when they rejected Rehoboam, also rejected how David had been told by God to build his temple in Jerusalem. And so the Samaritans had their own temple on Mount Gerizim, which is very close to where this scene is happening that we're reading about here. The Samaritans also only accepted the first five books of the Old Testament, and the rest they didn't see as authoritative and as scripture like the Jews did. So Jesus is walking into this seventh century old conflict and this is where he has this conversation with this woman at the well. We read in verse seven, a woman of Samaria came to draw water. And if we had been reading this in the first century, we would notice right away, this is strange because we've been told in verse six that it is the sixth hour. And this is referring to the sixth hour of daylight. So this is about noon. Samaria is hot. We read from other sources from this time, it was customary for women often to go and be the ones to get water, but usually they would go in groups. Usually they would go at the first time, the first thing in the morning when it wasn't as hot outside. So a, a, a reader of this situation in the first century would realize something strange is going on here. This woman in, intentionally is wanting to go at the hottest point of the day, avoiding the company that would maybe go in the morning and be on her own. And the rest of this story we'll see sheds light on why that might be. We read in verse seven, Jesus says to this woman, give me a drink. For the disciples we read had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is saying to you, give me a drink, then you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Verse 11, the woman said to him, sir, you have nothing to draw water with and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself as did his sons and livestock. Jesus said to her, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks of the water I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. Here the conversation takes a turn. Verse 16, Jesus says to her, go and call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you know, you are right in saying, I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one you have now is not your husband. What you have said is true. The woman said to him, sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. The conversation takes another turn, and perhaps it's, it's because this has become too personal for this woman. Jesus is quite intrusive at this point, and she's deflecting to one of these religious controversies of the day, where to worship God, in Jerusalem or on Mount Gerizim. 
But it might also be that this woman genuinely sensed that Jesus was a prophet. And in this culture, in this time, that was something that was taken very seriously. And she was aware, if this man has a kind of supernatural knowledge, but we Jews and Samaritans see things differently. So she raises this question. Verse 20, our fathers worshiped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We, we Jews, worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know that the Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. First thing I want to point out, we're thinking about love and judgment, is that Jesus in this story, in this, this scene, this isn't just a parable, this is something that really happened. Jesus judges this woman. I want to point out, I think he judges her in at least three ways. First, we see he judges her religion. Verse 22, Jesus minces no words. He insists, you Samaritans worship that what you do not know. We, we worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. Jesus is not ashamed to say that not all religions lead to God. He judges her religious beliefs. He insists salvation is from the Jews. Second, we see he judges her lifestyle. He brings up these five husbands and the man she's with now, living outside the bounds of what was culturally and scripturally accepted, even along the Samaritan's line of understanding. And we begin to see at this point why perhaps this woman wanted to go in the middle of the day. This is a small town. It's not unlikely that the rest of the town was aware of her living situations, and so it seems this woman was so used to this being brought up into her face or the gospel that, gossip that she knew was going always on behind her that she just decided to go on her own, even though it was the hottest point of the day. We don't know how long she did this, but apparently it was a, a part of her life. And Jesus brings this most painful part of her life up, and he does it in a way that does, in a, in a way, it does judge her. It, he judges her lifestyle. He judges her religion. And thirdly, I think we see he judges not only the way she's living, but even at a deeper level, the whole way she's looking for satisfaction and meaning in her life. Because it's, it's no coincidence, I think, we see this parallel. Jesus, on the one hand, speaks about this well that she has to keep coming back to over and over, always getting thirsty again. And then he speaks of this succession of husbands and men that she has to keep going back to over and over, one after the other, looking for what might be imagined, uh, one that will stick, a way to fulfill herself actually in this life. You might think one after the other, there was maybe the hope that eventually she'd land on one who either wouldn't want to divorce her or wouldn't, wouldn't pass away. This has been a source that's really occupied much of her life, we might imagine, to have five husbands. And we might even say this is you know, the seeming digression about where to worship, Ger Mount Gerizim or Jerusalem might not even be that much of a digression, whereas it seems these relationships, far more than Mount Gerizim, had been the focus, we might say, of the object of worship for this woman. But they hadn't been able to quench her thirst. And just for a, a sort of a modern restatement of this, I think there is real wisdom in this that even we resonate with today, even outside 
Christian circles. There is a, an author named David Foster Wallace, who was a postmodern novelist and um, quite well known in his time. He passed away about 13 years ago now. And he gave a speech at Kenyon College in the States to graduating students. And of all things to speak about, even though he wasn't a religious man, he was agnostic his whole life, he spoke about worship. Interesting. So this is what he said to these graduating students about to start their lives. He said to them, you get to consciously decide what has meaning and what doesn't. You get to decide what to worship. Because here's something that's weird but true in the day-to-day -day trenches of adult life. There's actually no such thing as atheism. There's no such thing as not worshiping. Everybody worships. The only choice we get is what to worship. I imagine if we went up and down Spadina today and we asked people, are you religious? We would probably, people would probably understand, well, they'd probably be uncomfortable. <laughs> and then they would probably get thinking, we mean, do you go to a place of worship on the weekend? Do you go to a mosque or a temple or a synagogue or something like that? But I think what Wallace would say, and I think what Jesus would say as well, is that we have defined religion and worship in a way that's too shallow. That there's something deeper behind it, actually, in the direction of where we find meaning and satisfaction in our lives. And none of us are exempt from that. What Wallace would say is, we all are worshiping something. But then Wallace goes on to say this, the compelling reason for maybe choosing some sort of God or spiritual type thing to worship is that pretty much anything else you worship will eat you alive. If you worship money and things, if they are where you tap real meaning in life, you will never have enough. You'll never feel you have enough. If you worship your body and beauty and sexual lure, you will always feel ugly. And when time and age start showing, you will die a million deaths before they finally grieve you. Worship power, you will end up feeling weak and afraid, and you will need ever more power over others to numb you to your own fear. Worship your intellect being seen as smart, you will end up feeling stupid, a fraud, always on the verge of being found out. But then he ends with this. The insidious thing about these forms of worship is not that they're evil, it's that they're unconscious. They are the default settings. And what's particularly poignant about these words is that, you know, as I alluded, he passed away a number of years ago, and he actually took his own life not many months after he gave this speech. And I had a, a colleague of mine point out, and I think he's right, that what this would mean, ironically, is that here you have David Foster Wallace nearing the end of his life, speaking to these students about to start theirs. And what that means is that these words aren't from a theoretical philosophy of life from Wallace. This was a pain he'd lived. And actually, there just seems to be a way about how life works. We naturally all find our worth and value in something, but find ourselves driven into the ground when it just doesn't measure up and meet the hopes that we have for it. I think Jesus and David Foster Wallace would say, there is no such thing as a non-religious person. We all have the tendency to worship something but we're so often let down when we find there's no satisfaction there. And I think Jesus is saying something similar to this woman at the well. She is looking for satisfaction in a place that she will not meet it. But I want to point out here, we're thinking about love and judgment. Jesus certainly judges this woman. He judges her religion. He judges the way she's living. He judges the whole orientation of her life, what she's looking for meaning and satisfaction for. But I think we see that she reacts in a way that we might not expect, especially today. When, when we're judged today, when someone cuts down what we see as the heart of who we are, what we do, our response would be to be upset or angry or just to shut that person out or to run away. But look how this woman responds in verse 27. 
Jesus' disciples come back and they marveled that Jesus was talking with a woman. But no one said, what do you seek or why are you talking with her? So the woman left her water jar and went away into the town. And she said to the people, come, see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? And they went out of the town and were coming to him. This woman has been judged, but something clearly has changed in her. We see this in a number of ways. One, at the very least, she's left the water jar behind. That's why she went to the well. It was already hot. It was probably a long walk to get there, but something of greater importance in her life suddenly crashed into her day. She, something has changed. But even more deeply, we see at the beginning of this passage, she is clearly avoiding people. That's why she's gone in the middle of the day. But suddenly at the end of this passage, she is literally running towards the town to talk to people, the very people she was just avoiding by going to get water at noon. We see at the beginning of this passage, it seems to be that she was avoiding people because she was ashamed of her past. She was ashamed of the way people thought about her. But now, notice that her words when she goes to the town are, come and see a man who told me all that I ever did. In a small town like this, we might imagine, people would think, we know what that means. We know what you've done. But suddenly, this part of her past, which shaped the whole way she organized her day, no longer has a hold over her. She runs into the town. She, the first words on her lips are about her own past. And she goes from being skeptical of the God of the Jews to suddenly going and inviting people to meet Jesus for themselves. And I just think this puzzles our modern paradigm. This woman has been judged, but she doesn't react in the way we might expect. And what might explain this? Um, I'd say one of the, I've been married for the last uh, few months and I'm learning things about marriage as I go. One of the things I've been learning is that it broadens your palette of books and movies that you maybe wouldn't normally watch or listen to <laughs> or read. Um, so, uh, yeah, and um, I had actually uh, the same colleague, Michael Ramsen, point out this uh, BBC series on Pride and Prejudice to me, but I didn't get the chance to read it until my, or actually see it until my wife showed it to me. So this is Pride and Prejudice. This is, um, you know, Jane Austen novel. It's a love story about Elizabeth and Mr. Darcy, and you might know the story that it's not quite as smooth as that. It takes Darcy a while to be a nicer, nice guy, but also just to articulate what he feels towards Elizabeth. But finally, a scene comes, which I think is, rele it is, it is relevant to what we're looking at here. And what happens is that Darcy and Elizabeth find themselves alone in a room. And like in good Victorian English style, Darcy realizes it's not appropriate for him to be there alone with her, and so he prepares to leave. But he gets to the door, and in a dr dramatic BBC moment, he turns to her, and he says these words, in vain I have struggled, it will not do. My feelings will not be repressed. You must allow me to tell you how ardently I admire and love you. It's a great, great line, great first start. But he goes on. He says, in declaring myself thus, I am fully aware that I will be going expressly against the wishes of my family and my friends, and I hardly need add my own better judgment. <laughs> And Elizabeth, instead of leaping into his arms, says this in response, I might wonder why with so evident a desire to offend me and insult me, you chose to tell me that you like me against your will, your reason, and even against your character. What is it that Elizabeth wants from Darcy? What she doesn't want is him to declare his passionate love for her on a whim in the moment. 
a love that's unreflected on and in fact goes against his better judgment. What Elizabeth wants is for Darcy to choose her, having thought through everything and having decided with the fullness of his character and his judgment and his mind that he truly loves her and wants her. I think there's a, a pastor in New York City, Tim Keller, who I think gets this just right when he says, to be fully loved but not fully known is shallow. To be fully loved is not fully known, and not fully known is shallow because we can always wonder if this person really knew who I was, if they knew me at my worst, would they still love me? But then he says, to be fully known and not loved is our greatest fear. To have someone see us as we really are and then to reject us for what they see? What could be worse than that? But then he says this, to be fully known and fully loved is our heart's greatest desire. To be known to the depths, to be known at our worst, but to be chosen and to be loved there, what could be better than that? I think true love is not love in the absence of judgment. I think in Elizabeth's mind, true love is love in the presence of it. And I think what explains the transformation of this woman in this story is that she is getting a taste of what it means to experience being fully known and fully loved. Because she's fully, fully known in that she becomes aware, I imagine, at the end that Jesus knew all about her before she even sat down to get the water. But she realizes she was fully loved because Jesus offered her that living water ahead of time, knowing all that about her, about her life, about her faith. And he gives her a chance to turn from living for men, for living for something that wasn't satisfying her, to living for God. And this experience, I think Jesus goes further to say, of being fully known and fully loved, can actually be part of this woman's daily lived reality, and as he speaks about this living water. Because this phrase, living water, is actually right from the Old Testament. Jeremiah used it. In Jeremiah 2.13, it's a word, a phrase that God used actually to describe himself. He said, my people have forsaken me, the fount of living water. So what this means is that Jesus is offering this woman living water. And if living water in Jeremiah means God himself, what Jesus is saying is that Jesus is able to offer the presence of God residing in her very heart, that this experience of being fully known and fully loved, which she is just tasting right now, might become a lived reality in her life as, in effect, God and the person of the Holy Spirit would whisper into the ears of her heart day in and day out this very reality that she is fully known and fully loved. And we see this creates a transformation in the life of this woman. And I think it's the very same transformation that Jesus offers to you and to me. We see it leads one to freedom of fear of others, freedom of what other people think. She realizes that the only one whose opinion really counts has already passed his judgment, and she's been loved and accepted there. She's freed, freed from her fear of others. She's freed from any shame and guilt her past used to hang over her with. It no longer has a hold on how she sees herself, and it no longer needs to have a hold on how we see ourselves when we've turned to find our satisfaction in God. We see it leads to a change in her behavior. There's something emblematic when the water jar is left behind that there is something of greater importance that's come into her life. She's found a source of satisfaction that will actually quench her thirst. We see it leads also to a heart even for mission, we might say, as right away 
She's experienced what it means to be fully known and fully loved, and she can't help but go to her friends and invite them to experience that for themselves. And not just even hear it from her, but to go and meet Jesus and know what it means to be fully known and fully loved by him. And lastly, I think we see there is joy as well. I think Jesus is, is saying to us that that is part of what he offers us in that indwelling of God in our hearts. It makes us joyful. There's a spring in her step. There's something new in her life that wasn't there before. I think this is what Jesus offers to each of us when we turn to worship him. But I want to return to the story. Pick, look, pick up with me again at verse 31. The disciples come back. They, are urging, they were urging Jesus, Rabbi, eat. He said to them, I have food to eat that you do not know about. The disciples said to one another, has anyone brought him something to eat? Jesus said to them, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Jesus has spoken of living water as a metaphor. And here Jesus now speaks of food as a metaphor. Jesus says to them, my food is to do the will of him who sent me to accomplish his work. Both food and water have this metaphorical sense of something that satisfies. And what that means is that what Jesus is saying is that it is food to Jesus to provide living water to others. It is of the greatest satisfaction to Jesus to bring people to find their greatest satisfaction in him. And all of this, Jesus says, is the will of the one who sent him, his Father in heaven. And what's, I think, so profound about this is that this idea of God's will it's something that Jesus, you know, he speaks of it here. God's will for Jesus is to invite people to experience that satisfaction in him. But elsewhere, when Jesus speaks about his will, he speaks about it in a very different way, the will of the Father. In Luke 22:47, uh, Jesus is in Gethsemane in the garden. He's soon to be arrested, put on a sham of a trial, and crucified. And Jesus, in that moment, as he's about to be arrested, prays to God, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. Suddenly here, the will of God has become to put Jesus to death, the will of the Father. And actually, I think we see, at, in later in the Gospel of John, we see how these two different wills of God the Father, which seem so different, on the one hand, that Jesus would die, on the other hand, that Jesus would have his life purpose to provide rich satisfaction, living water in the lives of you and me, are actually one and the same thing. In John 19.28, Jesus would be hanging on the cross, and he would say, I thirst. And scholars tell us, given how water and thirsting are themes all throughout the book of John, Jesus is probably saying more than just he's physically thirsty on the cross. And here it is that we begin to see that the reason why Jesus could offer this woman living water, when living water symbolizes the presence of God in her heart, is that on the cross, it's this very thing that Jesus would have taken from him. Jesus on the cross takes on the separation from God that this woman and that you and I deserve so that he might be able to offer his presence with her, welling up in her heart, giving her a source of satisfaction that would quench her every thirst. In a way, we could say Jesus is able to offer this woman love in the presence of judgments because on the cross, he would take that judgment onto himself. And just to share a quick story. A few months ago, I was out west at a university 
and we were putting on a series of events, and a, a young man came up after one of the talks and asked if I could have breakfast with him the next morning. It turns out he wasn't even a student. He was a young business professional, and he showed up at the breakfast the next morning you know, in a cafe on campus, but dressed to the nines. Really sharp guy, young, and he, he sat down with me and he said, no, I'm a business guy, I'm just gonna cut right to the chase. <laughs> I have more money than I know what to do with. I sense no deep sense of need in my life. But, and, I, and then he also said, I've been around Christianity for a while. I'm aware of this idea that God loves people. But then he began to sort of struggle to speak and his eyes filled with water and he said, what I cannot understand is that God would actually love me. That God would really, that, that he would love me. And he just broke down in this cafe at 7 a.m. in the morning, you know, over his eggs and bacon on the edge of this campus. And it was moving, a moving moment to feel this, this sense of being known and loved break through all in a moment for this young man. And I couldn't help but think after the fact that you know, our culture's sense of true love being love without judgment, and it's maybe crass to put it this way, but I think it does resemble a bit how Santa Claus loves us. Santa Claus offers us love without judgment. You can be a grown man, and if you're feeling low around Christmas time, you can make your way up to Eaton Center and sit on Santa's lap, if they let you, and Santa will offer you love without judgment. But I know of no grown man who has cried after meeting Santa Claus. Maybe some children, but no grown men. But I know many grown men who've cried about the love they've received from Jesus. And I think that's saying something profound about what love is really like. The love that Santa Claus offers doesn't change our lives. But to be fully known and fully loved, as we see in this story, it has the power to move us and to change us and to make us people who we aren't and to give us a sense of worth and value and identity and satisfaction that we never had before. I just want to close now by, by way of application. I think this passage calls for two applications from us, calls us to respond. I think at first, I think we see that all of us, as David Foster Wallace helps us see, none of us are exempt from this challenging word that Jesus says about the way our hearts work, that we all naturally look for satisfaction in places other than a relationship with God. We do this even to some extent after we've placed our trust in him. I think this passage calls us afresh this morning to reflect on what might that be for me? What is that place for us where we are looking, we're placing our hopes? It's the thing that keeps us up late at night, that gets us anxious, the thing that we're talking about whenever people just ask out of the blue, how are we doing? It might be just the focus of everything we're hoping for, for our career or the future of our families or for our studies, where we wanna see things lead to. Where might it be that God is asking you and me to turn from that well that won't satisfy to finding our worth and value and what it means to be fully known and fully loved by God? I think God is calling us this morning, we might say in the words of Isaiah 55, to come back to him. Isaiah writes, come everyone who thirsts, come to the waters and he who has no money, come buy and eat. Come by wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread and your labor for that which does not satisfy? Listen diligently to me and eat what is good and delight yourselves in rich food. Incline your ear and come to me. Hear that your soul 
may live. In a few moments, we'll be celebrating the Lord's Supper and we'll be invited to literally eat and drink. And it's, it's always a chance that we have to rededicate and recommit ourselves to finding our satisfaction away from what we've been looking for it in and instead in the knowledge that we are known and loved by God. And as we taste the bread and the wine, we'll be able to really physically taste what it means to be fully known and fully loved as we reflect that this bread broken and this blood shed, which we remember in the wine, point us to remember the death of Christ for us. That we are fully known and fully loved. That's the story of the bread and the wine. And we have a chance this morning to respond, to turn back to God, recalling that. But second and lastly, by way of application, I imagine that there are many of us who are believers here, but who would say, I see this transformation in this woman, but I don't know if I would say I feel that kind of joy, God leaping up in my heart. I don't know if I feel that kind of total freedom from shame. I don't know if I feel that kind of total freedom from the way, from having to think about others. I don't know if I feel that total change in the behavior, these behaviors I've been working on changing so long. I just don't feel, I know that living water is supposed to produce that effect in my life, but I just don't feel I have it. I think for those of us in that place, I think we should heed the words of Jesus in Luke 11, verse 11. Jesus said, What father among you, if a son asks for a fish, will instead of a fish give him a serpent? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? It's interesting that Jesus says this, because elsewhere in the Bible, it seems clear that we can't even come to believe in Jesus apart from the Holy Spirit. And yet here, it seems Jesus is saying to these people who've presumably come to faith that they are to ask for more. They are to ask for the Holy Spirit. It's something they are to literally to ask God for more of. And I think, I think Martin Lloyd-Jones, the famed British pastor of the last century in the UK, I think he's just right when he puts it this way, that this invitation to ask for more of that spirit and the effect we see it's supposed to work out in our lives, that that's, in Martin Lloyd-Jones' words, that invitation is as applicable today as it was in Jesus' own day while on earth. In other words, our Lord is saying to us, if you are conscious of the lack of the spirit and of this need, go to God as your father and offer petition to him Indeed, our Lord emphasizes the element of importunity. Ask, seek, knock. Go on, he says. Be persistent. In the same sermon, Lloyd-Jones actually even says that this desire we have when we see that we are lacking in joy, we're lacking in a change that we want to see in our lives as Christians, is actually something healthy to find within us. He says this, one of the great troubles of the Christian church today, as has often been the case before, is that so many Christian people are content to live complacently. They are anxious to know that they've been saved and they're not going to hell, but they seem to be content with that. But it should be our earnest desire always to enjoy all that is offered us of the exceeding riches of the grace of God in and through our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Let's be encouraged this morning, friends, when we feel we acknowledge and are aware of our incomplete experience of the fullness of life Jesus offers. That very desire for more might just be where God wants us this morning if it brings us to a place of asking him and seeking and knocking.
And I just end by reading how this passage ends, verse 39. Many Samaritans from that town believed in him. Because of the woman's testimony, he told me all that I ever did. It's interesting, isn't it? John summarizes all of that woman's ministry in those words, all that she's ever done. That was the forefront of her message, that she had known what it was to be fully known and fully loved. Verse 40, we read, When the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them, and he stayed there two days. And many more believed because of his word, and they said to the woman, It is no longer because of what you said that we believe. We've heard for ourselves, and we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. May that be so in Toronto today as well. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Ghost. Amen. Amen.